afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this month's iteration of Short Cloud Cyber Threat Briefing. As usual, I'm joined by Hugh, one of our senior consultants uh, in our cyber practice. Um, today, we're going to be talking about enterprise security architecture. Um, so, quite an interesting subject to me personally. My team uh, deliver quite a lot of consultancy in this space. And Hugh, obviously, you, you work on the opposite side of this. So, tell me your thoughts around security architecture. What does it mean to organizations? And ultimately, where do we start? Yeah, so security architecture, then, it's a huge topic, right, across the enterprise. And I think that we approach it from an attacking perspective really should dictate the way that you approach it from the defensive side. So as the attack surface with it across an enterprise is so huge in comparison to, you know, a, a typical sort of small isolated network, you've really got to consider the multitude of different paths and entry methods that an attacker might take. So something like threat modeling, where you're considering, okay, what is an attacker going to be looking for? What are the steps they're going to try trying to take to get there? I think is really important when you're sort of at the, you know, the initial stage of designing this enterprise architecture to consider what's going on and that using that information to sort of help you plan the defenses, the controls you're going to put in place. Yeah, so it's interesting really, isn't it? I mean, organizations look sometimes in isolation at how they're securing different parts of the enterprise. But when we're talking about the, the architecture as a whole, I guess what we're looking at is that entirety of the attack surface and really trying to understand where we are susceptible to external threats or potentially internal threats. And I guess the, the, the general feeling here, Hugh, is that we're developing this kind of defense in depth model, you know, quite a a keyword term that gets thrown around quite a lot. But what, what does that actually mean in practice when we're thinking about the controls and, and how we structure or how we create this enterprise architecture? Yeah, so defense in depth is really important. And I think a lot of the, some of the mistakes that people make are they will invest heavily in a control set and they will rely on that one control set to keep them secure. So they might say, for example, take a web application, looking at something like SQL injection is a really basic common attack. They will invest heavily in their input sanitization and filtering to make sure that no malicious content gets through that filter. But you've got to assume it will, right? You say, what, okay, what if it does? This control that we've invested so heavily in, it fails us, what then? Well, you don't want that to be your only control. So my, you might add in secondary controls, right? So like a web application firewall. So for instance, if, if it doesn't successfully strip out that content, then the firewall is then able to identify that this is, the attack has been attempted and block it then. So you're, you're adding these multiple levels further along the, the attack chain you go. So you'll look and say, this is what an attack is likely to do first. Okay, let's put in one control to prevent that happening then an attacker from there is likely to try and pivot to this location. Let's implement a control here to stop that. So you're basically getting ahead of the attacker in every move they're making and implementing a different unique control at each point in that chain. So this layering model then is hugely important really, isn't it? Making sure that we're protecting ourselves around different security threats, but in different ways as well. I guess we're looking at how our understanding of the, the threat actor itself and, and how they're likely to compromise our environment. But then, as you've just said, you know, assuming, I guess, that each of those is going to fail down to, you know, obviously the, the areas that we're looking to protect that may have kind of that more sensitive information. So you mentioned a, a term there around threat modeling. So 
we've got this concept of threat-centric focus when we're looking at designing enterprise security architectures. You know, why is that really important to you? Why would we focus on the threats to us first? I know it sounds quite obvious, but a lot of organizations will maybe go with a control-led approach first. Why, why would we choose a threat-led approach? So I guess in a world where budget is infinite and time is infinite, that's a reasonable approach. But I think most organizations, that's not the case, right? And so you really need to be considering what is an attacker likely to be doing and what is an attacker likely to be you know, trying to achieve and focusing your risk management controls around those areas so that you're putting the most effort in where it's going to pay off the most rather than just investing in a particular topic or a software solution or you know control which you think is fantastic which ticks every box but it's not securing the ingress method that an attacker is actually going to be trying to uh, to attack okay and, and as with everything in security i guess this is an iterative cycle right where we're continually learning so what about some of the new things using threat intelligence feeds looking at continuous testing how do those affect our decisions in how we structure and manage our enterprise architecture yeah so i think it is like you say it's really important to get the basics done right the start of any process when you're developing this enterprise architecture but as you mentioned it is key that you are constantly reassessing that threat landscape because a control that you've implemented a year, two years ago, might not be sufficient today. And so, yeah, as you say, it really is an iterative process where you're constantly looking, establishing what the landscape looks like at the moment and what you need right now to ensure your ongoing security. So I guess I always work well with examples, Hugh. So, I mean, obviously, we've talked about this layered approach. We've talked about understanding the threats. And, and obviously, enterprise architecture is a big thing for organizations, whether they're sort of protecting very small infrastructures and business processes or, or whether they're obviously very vast. So what kind of an example could you give that I guess would help us to understand how that architecture can be affected by different decisions that we make? Yeah, so an example I really like is the example of the front door of a house, right? So some organizations that aren't necessarily considering the defense in depth model, and will they'll look at a specific group of controls. So say a padlock on the front door. Now, they might think, okay, what's more secure than one padlock? Let's use six different padlocks, right? But if all of these padlocks from the same manufacturer of exactly the same type, yes, if an attacker is able to pick one lock, it will take them more time to pick the other five. But there's nothing materially different about those additional padlocks that means that that attack is going to be prevented. Whereas a, a defense in depth approach would layer these uh, controls on. So you might have a couple of locks on the outside of the door you might secure the door from the inside you'd use different mechanisms from different manufacturers so that there's material differences in each of these controls and they would need to be overcome or, or you know bypassed in, in an attack sense in different ways okay so if we think about that from a kind of threat perspective then so you know whilst we're looking at the front door in in isolation i guess what we're saying now is that controls need to be laid in such a way that they work together to prevent that threat rather than just layering additional controls on top of each other that may prevent this, the same attack path, but maybe in multiple areas. So where would we look, I guess, from understanding this information? I mean, obviously we want to get to a point where we've got an effective measurement of how this is performing. So if we're understanding our threats and we're 
looking at this layered control model, you know, how ultimately do we build something that's effective and has controls that work together in such a way that we prevent those threats from coming further than we want them to? It's a difficult question, right? How do we know it's working? I think there's various things that we can do. We can look at our traditional testing methods, seeing how many incidents or breaches that get reported, service desk tickets, that sort of thing. How successful potential, you know, if you're having any penetration testing or red teaming done, how successful these exercises are and how far through to the crown jewels of the organization they're able to penetrate. And I think that's probably a really good way of determining really whether your your approach is working. Yeah. So thinking about some of these attack vectors then. So obviously, you know, the ones that we traditionally talk about phishing, maybe not so common these days, but things like USB drops and downloading things from the internet. And obviously, Microsoft talked recently about blocking macros within Office files by default. Thinking about those layered security controls, you know, how are people going to need to think differently about their security controls? And I guess before I get you to answer that, Hugh, we've got a poll question which looks quite specifically about how you all think that attack paths will change as a result of that sort of information provided by Microsoft. So I'm going to put it up now and see what you all think. But Hugh, what do you think? How do you think it's going to change an organization's view of how they secure against simple things like macro-enabled documents? Yeah, so it's, it's obviously a great step that Microsoft are taking because I think realistically these days, the number of people that need to execute macro-enabled documents from the internet is probably quite slim in comparison to the the amount of attackers that are using that. But I think, again, it, this is one single control, right? And it's reflective of that defense in depth requirement because yes, an attacker is no longer able to send you that macro document. But then, okay, they might then know for a credential capture method where they don't need to deliver that malware onto your system. They're just gonna offer you a gift card, say that you've got to sign in on some website, and then you're gonna go to them and type in your credentials and they'll get in that way. So. Yeah, it's important to remember, I think, that these attackers, they're not just using this one method and relying on that. They've probably got many methods and they're just going to be going for the easiest one that's available to them at that time. And so when a change comes in like this from Microsoft, we do have to think, okay, now that this isn't going to work, what is the new threat going to be? Yeah, absolutely. So this is quite pertinent to an enterprise architecture, really, isn't it? Because you're thinking constantly about things that are changing in the environment and things that are within and outside of your control. So how might we vary our testing techniques for each of these different layers? I mean, are we, you mentioned earlier around budget. I mean, obviously, that there aren't infinite security budgets these days. And if you've got one, then congratulations. But I think how can we make this meaningful as possible? How do we focus in the right areas? We've talked about threat modeling. How do we test these controls to get assurance that those layers, those individual controls that are layered on top of each other, how do we get a measurement of the effectiveness you know, outside of the tickets and the overall reduction in security? How can we test that? Yeah, so I think it's really important here because everyone knows, right, you can't test everything with fully manual testing across an enterprise. It's just resource prohibitive. But that's where our threat modeling, our threat intelligence really comes in to great value. We can identify you know, the crown jewels within our organization, and that's where we're going to prioritize our manual testing. Across the whole perimeter, we could probably say we can get vulnerability scanning done. That's largely automated, you know, a light touch of human input into that. 
but it can mainly be done you know, through automated scanning tools. And that's gonna give you that wide coverage over your perimeter. And then the more critical systems, we can still focus our, our efforts on, on that manual testing. And then after we've tested this system in isolation for a pen test, this environment's been tested with a pen test, we also then want to consider, you know, bringing in the organization as a whole and looking at sort of a red team exercise and can we you know, migrate from here to here and compromise the estate as a whole? Yeah, okay. So it's important that we obviously design the right security testing to get the right level of assurance for the right controls. What about the processes then that sit around this, Hugh? Because obviously the, the architecture is not going to run itself. It, it's not going to sit there with a nice fully automated process that, that keeps it relevant and keeps us secure so what about some of the other things like configuration management and change management and you know how do those processes affect our ability to maintain that security posture yeah i think across the enterprise that's probably one of the largest risk areas and where where these issues creep in enterprise could be thousands of devices right it's going to be really hard to sort of micromanage each of these and so I think that's where good documentation, good policy is really important because remember, you've got to secure your entire estate. An attacker is only looking for one vulnerability to get in. And so you know, some of the most common things are unpatched systems, right? So making sure that from the start, or if you, I see we've got a question about, we've already got our network, we can't redo everything. You can still take these steps, right? You can still try and work out your current assets, what the environment looks like at the moment. And you can go from there. Yeah, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of organizations that have maybe grown fairly quickly or, or maybe you know, fairly organically, but in a way that's not necessarily conducive to this joined up approach. So uh, I think it's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever suggesting that we rebuild everything. Otherwise, we'd be forever doing it. I think for newer environments where, you know, organizations are looking at deploying things, infrastructure as code into cloud-based environments, you know, it probably does lend itself to make significant changes in a slightly less intrusive way. But I think some of the fundamentals here, Hughes mentioned this cost-benefit piece earlier, the weighting between understanding the offensive versus the defensive. We've just mentioned about the process side of it. You know, I think all of those things help to structure that security architecture, you know, and improve that over time. It doesn't necessarily need us to go and make whole scale changes. But I mean, some of the fundamental things, Hugh, when you were talking about testing, I assume, you know, these controls, we're thinking about segmentation, we're thinking about least privilege, zero trust is obviously, you know, a nice buzzword at the moment. You know, what are some of the other things that organisations could be doing around existing infrastructure in order to maybe chip away at some of these things over time? Yeah, so I think, as I said, some of the largest risks and some of the biggest areas that we're seeing that the organisations need to really improve is around like default configurations of devices, especially in the last few years where pieces of infrastructure have rapidly been deployed to sort of facilitate you know, remote working and new offices and things like that. We're seeing a lot of devices that are spun up, they're left in default settings with default credentials, and you know that's really valuable for an attacker. So I think, again, it goes back to that documentation, that understanding what you've got, how things are set up, I think even right from the start, right, say you were designing a new environment, I think it's really important that right from day one, you're anticipating the lifespan of that system and looking at, okay, what are we going to do when it's going to be decommissioned in three, five years time, maybe longer? You need to have that plan from the start 
for the future. And that'll help you keep on top of all these changes and make sure that things don't manage to slip through the cracks. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had another question around sort of whether there are many organisations that manage to get this right consistently. And again, you know, we have mentioned security uh, teams and resources and things, and it, it is a constrained area most of the time. But thinking about how many people get this right constantly, I mean, have you got any examples, Hugh, where people maybe have good, solid, robust security architectures and still manage to be compromised through different test techniques? Yeah, no specific examples, but it absolutely happens, right? I'm going to say nobody has this perfect. It is a huge task, a very difficult task, and I'd be surprised if anyone gets their enterprise architecture bang on. But it's not a binary system, right? We don't either, making no efforts towards securing our enterprise architecture or all of it. Same with the adage about running away, two guys running away from a lion, right? You don't need to outrun the lion, you just need to outrun your friend. I think the same can be said for this. If you're taking more steps than some of the easier targets around you, then that is going to provide you a level of security in its own because attackers are just going to be going for the easiest way into an organization. Yeah, I think you're right. But we do see, I guess, some of the more consistently applied things like segmentation tends to be most of the organizations we'll go into now won't be operating flat networks. You know, they'll have thought of how they're segmenting different systems away from others. I guess you could say that a lot of organizations are getting that part consistently right now, thinking about how they're structuring their networks to ensure that obviously the the crown jewels are not being put towards the edge of the perimeter of their their environments. So there are some things I think that that people do consistently well. I think on the process side of it, there's uh, certainly lots more in the cloud space now through automation, being able to have kind of regular visibility of these things. So I guess you could say that some of that consistency is brought through those types of platforms that will go and automate a lot of these actions and help to make sure that you're keeping on top of regular activities. You know, Hugh mentioned patching earlier as well. So I think there are aspects of consistency where people are doing this well. Um, I think, you know, resource constraints is not unique to your organisation. Lots of organisations suffer with with trying to get a balance between what value focusing time and effort into this space brings you know compared to that overall reduction i think the thing i find here and i don't know about you it's actually really difficult to measure the effectiveness of a security architecture obviously you pointed out a few things earlier that um, obviously in your experience organizations are using to see whether they're achieving an overall reduction in some of these areas but that would directly equate to an overall increase in the security of the environment. But measuring how effective a good, solid security architecture is, is quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, security is always a cost, right? Security is never a revenue generating function. And it's hard to work out how much you would have had to spend had you not taken these measures to secure yourself. So yeah, the metrics that we can use aren't perfect, but I think they're you know enough of a good indicator for us to pay attention to them. I think interestingly as well, sometimes organisations see security as an insurance policy, which you only really recognise the value of the steps you take through securing your infrastructure when you've had uh, an incident or you've had a breach um, and you're looking backwards. Um, actually working with specialists you know, like Hugh and, and the wider team, actually understanding how those controls have worked to prevent an attacker from getting any further. I guess we see that through some of the red team engagements, don't we, Hugh, in terms of the controls that frustrate attackers that work some of the the newer technologies that work together to 
bring together, you know, a very concise um, kind of view of the world so that, you know, attackers don't really get as much information as they used to. Um, you know, I think looking at that side of it is interesting. Um, I think the other area that I'm interested in, though, Hugh, is what weaknesses in this structure would an attacker look for? What do you look for in a security architecture? How do you approach this? Yeah, so as you mentioned, it, it's the things like these configuration weaknesses. It's systems that have been rushed together, deployed quickly, where the time just isn't there to fully connect everything together properly. That's one of the biggest issues at the moment. So we're back to this kind of mentality of prevention is better than cure. So, you know, looking very much at the planning side of it rather than the reactive side of it to make sure we understand what we're protecting, how we're protecting it, and really understanding how those controls are working together to obviously secure the environment. We just have another question around how the individual can develop their architecture to remain effective. I think we've probably answered some of that already in, in keeping up the basics. Security architecture doesn't have to be complicated, does it? Um, I think keeping good visibility of your risk profile, keeping good visibility of the landscape and the threats, but again, operating the processes, the things that um, make changes to that. I mean, how often, Hugh, do you find misconfiguration of things that maybe haven't been through as robust change process as they could have been. Um, you know, you were indicating a minute ago, you know, you're looking for weaknesses. So I think, you know, keeping processes up to scratch and making sure we're getting the right approvals, probably the softer side of this, because as we all know in security, not everything is solved by technology. So I guess to help remain effective, I guess it's doing the basics right and doing those consistently, Hugh. Yeah, I'd say that is bang on. I think change management processes are one to really nail down because a lot of the time we'll see someone saying this is just a small change it needs to be done pressure from above get the change done but across the whole enterprise that sort of tiny bit of risk that we're introducing through that unmanaged change then aggregates across the enterprise and soon we've got you know quite a lot of actual aggregated risk that no one's really aware exists because it's not documented so Technology is all well and good, but nailing that people and process, yeah, that's really important. Yeah, thanks, Hugh. So I just want to go back to the poll question. Um, so we asked, how will attacks change as a result of the new office macro secure by default settings? Um, we had four answers, things around tricking users into disabling default protection, um, you know, phishing via other built-in apps or, or other means of getting into the organisation, you know, other vulnerabilities, um, or, or just kind of carry on as they are because organizations disable these things by default. Um, I think it's really interesting, you know, nobody picked the last one. Um, I think through my experience, I would probably agree with that as well. I see a lot of macro-enabled files still being transferred around organizations. A few people have answered around tricking users into disabling the default protection. Again, you know, I think some of the social engineering side of this, Hugh, that's, that's potentially a viable option. Um, I think Absolutely. most people... Most people pick the middle two, right? They, they picked phishing. Um, you know, I think phishing is rife all of the time. It's a nice, easy entry point for attackers, particularly for business-focused, public-facing users, um, such as marketing teams, sales teams, HR teams, where they're interacting a lot with external parties. But again, trying to find other vulnerabilities to gain access, that again was quite a popular answer. And it comes back to something you said earlier. If you go down the rabbit hole so far, you know, and you get stuck, ultimately, you're going to come back and look for another route in. 
you know, if you come up against a control that, you know, it's going to take too long for you to work out how to break it, you're probably just going to go and look for another route. So again, I think that is a very good answer. And it's interesting in how we kind of respond to those. I mean, trying to find other vulnerabilities to gain access, obviously defending against that, Hugh's given you some ideas about how to kind of take a threat-centric kind of focus when looking at your security architecture, layering security controls um, to make sure that those are working together um, to achieve a common goal, but are not too similar that they can be broken with common attacks. Again, you know, thinking about phishing via other built-in apps, um, you know, there are obviously lots of things that we use in, in business now that are collaborative with uh, both internal and external stakeholders. So it is possible that you know, looking at other built-in apps might be a good um, kind of route. But you know, Microsoft, again, have got their own kind of security model in how they look to block these things. So there is, again, talk recently, Hugh, wasn't there, around disabling kind of communication with public email addresses via office apps like Teams. Um, you know, interestingly, it doesn't come as an option out of the box that, that's defaulted to off. A lot of organisations recently have been sort of turning that off because they identified no need to talk to Hotmail, Gmail, um, you know, various other accounts from a business Teams instance. So I think, again, you know, phishing by those types of, of methods is a viable option. So uh, interesting thoughts there. Thank you for those. Hopefully, uh, you know, some of what we've been talking about today will help to put into perspective how you might think about those types of things, uh, although that is um, obviously one isolated idea there. But Hugh, anything else um, I guess you want to add at this point around enterprise architectures, either, uh, you know, how they work to sort of help organisations to secure their environments or, uh, you know, have a threat-centric process so that they can focus on the things that are most important, um, measuring the effectiveness of them, um, or indeed, you know, looking at some of the weaknesses as well? I think we've covered quite a lot of really good stuff there. I've just seen a question come in there about our comments around security being a cost and yeah i do think that that absolutely it can be repositioned as a, a great adver- you know advertisement for an organization if you can hold up your testing attestations on on the wall say to potential customers look we're, we're doing this this and this we really are ahead of the game we're going to be keeping the data that you give us safe absolutely it can drive revenue i think not many people see it that way and it is really i think across the board still seen as just a cost Yeah, I think it depends on who you talk to as well. I mean, if you're looking to talk to executive stakeholders, you know, often, um, you know, a lot of the things that they're investing in have a return on investment, they have a direct ability to show the benefit. I think the comments we were making was that security doesn't often drive those until you can see the benefit of the controls you put in place from incidents um, or from breaches. Um, So by no means, um, you know, would I want to advocate that security is a waste of time and you know, is just dead cost, um, because that's very much what we go in to talk to our clients about. But I think depending on who you talk to, the benefits of security and how you balance those and message those is incredibly important. So I do agree with that point. And I think as we move forwards as a security, being more aware of security and, and the threats to um, our environments, I think selling that message internally will hopefully become easier um, you know, nobody wants to become the next big ticket item where you know you're the talking point of a major breach. And all of these things that you're doing to proactively protect yourselves through this information security ecosystem, you know, are ultimately going to be preventing security from being a sunk cost or looking at it 
as an insurance policy. So I think the point was made more so to highlight the fact that working proactively and looking at how you secure these environments before you get breached um, is obviously far more beneficial than relying on the security that you put in place post-incident or post-breach. And hopefully with those two things working together, you can see that the investment is made in a very positive and very proactive manner. But it is a good comment and, and equally, you know, I'm quite happy to be corrected on areas like that. Have we got any other questions? Great. Okay. Well, Hugh, thank you for your time. Um, thank you to everybody for attending. And hopefully we'll see you again at one of our future briefings. Take care and have a good afternoon.